We're back on the Fan Morning Show, Sportsnet 590. The Fan. It is Justin. It is Alish. Big busy day. Candy barbecue. <sighs> Billy of, Talent. A lot of stuff. Billy Talent. We've got a lot to go through Ooh. here. We've got a lot to talk about with our next guest, who's on an hour later than he normally is. He's going to be so well I want, rested. I, I mean, he's he's, he's he's batting a thousand with us all the time. Yep. I don't know if there will be a discernible change from 7 a.m. to 8 a.m., but I'm excited to find out. It is Frank Saravalli of DailyFaceOff.com. Our insider brought to you by Don Valley North Lexus, where you can expect excellence online and in the showroom. Visit DonValleyNorthLexus.com. Good morning, Frank. The old reliable, it doesn't matter what time of day it is. You get the same from me, no material change here. You, it is, he it he is sounds the same. immaculate as it's, always. It's as good as it's ever been. No change <laughs> from seven to eight. Uh, so what's going on here? You're going to be uh, looking to- forward to uh, summer here just a little bit, Frank. Any, any big plans? Are you starting to take your mind off hockey a little bit, or you can't really afford to do that until after July 1? No, trying to just keep my eye on the ball. Uh, We've got uh, 12 days left. Who's counting? Uh, but there's, <laughs> this is going to be 12 of the craziest action-packed days. And I especially expect this week uh, to hear a lot more in terms of names that are in play, what teams' plans are. Like Now that we've gotten through, some teams were just doing pro scouting meetings last week again. Now that we're through that part of it, um, this is it's full on trade season up until the draft next Wednesday. Yep, it's going to be busy, busy. Uh, when you're, you know, you know, you're going through. You got 12 days. You've got it mapped up. No one's counting. Uh, <laughs> what, what, what do you like think is going to? What's top of mind for you? Like, what are you chasing? What, what seems most interesting at this point? Where do all roads run through right now when it comes to NHL rumor and NHL discussion at large? I think it's the Winnipeg Jets followed closely by the Calgary Flames. And look, there's so much to figure out. And, you know, there's, there's a few other high-profile RFAs sprinkled in. What's going on with Alex Debrinkit? And, you know, how will, I don't know, take a team like the St. Louis Blues, which is basically said out loud, we're going to be reshaping our team and, and basically trading the other two first-round picks that we have. Where does a team like that go out and grab a player? Is it someone like Alex Debrinkit? All those things sort of, you know, there's a lot floating out there. And in a, especially in a year where the free agent crop isn't as exciting or sexy, this is, it's the trade portion of it that's way more entertaining and engaging. So Canada can't win a Stanley Cup, but we can win Frank's most interesting offseason teams, Calgary uh-huh. and Winnipeg. We'll take that. Um, let's start with Winnipeg. Can't win in soccer either. Oh, okay, Frank. Yeah, I yeah. see. You take it, it might be one of the differences yeah. between seven and eight, a little bit yeah, more. Yeah, he's uh, fired up. He's wrote down some chirps this morning. That's okay. <laughs> Yeah, that's good. Uh, okay, let's start with the Jets, though, because as you said, they got a lot of interesting pieces that might be on the move. Um, how confident are you that they will make the kind of more tough decisions and start to sell off some of these big names? And do they need to go full rebuild? And and uh, who would, is Connor Hellebuck the, kind of the, the first top name for you? Well, really confident that they're going to be making moves. And I think part of it is because they have to. Um, they're in a spot where... They've got a couple guys that don't want to be back or at least have signaled to them that they don't want to be back. And they've got other guys that have been there for a long time that are nearing the end of their contract that I don't think really there's an avenue to bring back. And so 
when you smash all those things together, um, it, it creates what some people view in Winnipeg as a really tough environment. Man, how is this team going to regroup? I, to answer your question about the rebuild, I I don't see a full rebuild. I see maybe a retool, like a maybe you take a little bit of a step back this year, maybe not, um, and then you're on your way to what's next. And, yeah, it's hard to kind of envision what that path looks like right now, especially if you're losing Connor Hellebuck, for instance, the backbone of your team. But I don't think it's possible, and I think the Jets hold the same belief with Kyle Connor and Nick Ehlers and Josh Morrissey in that group. It's not possible to bottom out. Like, there, there's no way that they're going to be at the very bottom of the standings. And I think always the last place you want to be is that, that mushy middle where you're somewhere between 8th and 14th in your conference. But I, I think the Jets have an ability here um, especially with the the talent that they have available. I've mentioned this before, the premier young center on the market in Pierre-Luc Dubois, the premier goaltender in Connor Hellebuck, like why not? Like they're in a spot where they can command significant value and use those pieces, you know, and then when you factor in Shifley playing at a level way above his cap hit, yeah, it might be difficult to, to take a loss on Blake Wheeler, but I think you're going to have to rip the Band-Aid off and do it. Y- you have this unique situation where you can not only acquire some pieces for the future, but probably with the right circumstance, acquire some pieces for the right here and now, or at least the next few years, that I think it's a really exciting time to be a Jets fan. The joke writes itself with Kevin Shevel day off because, you know, it's Kevin Shevel take a tenure off in a lot of ways. Like he hasn't been the guy who's been overly aggressive in the trade market forever. He's had that job forever. He's been there for so long and he hasn't really made that big move. Like, is there confidence that he can execute this? I mean, there is with me. Like I, I've seen no reason why he can't navigate this. And he's sitting there with, uh, you know, a fresh sleeve of Play-Doh. Why not take, you know, you're, you're the guy that inherited Jets 2.0. You have the ability to sit at your desk now and make this Jets 3.0. Um, I, I see no reason why, given especially the lack of assets available around the league, I mean, you, you've got really, really good players to move. Why not? Yeah, I I think you make an important point on Mark Shifley because I'm thinking about Shifley and Wheeler. I'm like, how could you get anything back comparable in return? But Shifley is, you know, not exactly breaking the bank with his earnings. It just looks like, you know, there's a couple guys who you can't, I I thought at least you can't really get anything for. And then if you trade Hellebuck, like how could you possibly get better? And Pierre-Luc Dubois kind of backed himself into a corner a little bit. So yeah, I mean, I'm 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 definitely not the person to execute those deals. But I do have, I do wonder about Kevin Sheveldayoff executing this myself. Um... Let's go to the so Evans. had 42 goals last year in a sub six million dollar cap hit, and then that's the like, important why, point. That and is he's the, a center, like, and he's and he's under 30 years old. Like, why is that a difficult? Or he just turned 30. Why is that a difficult guy to trade? But it's also like, why isn't he this coveted asset? Like, why isn't he the guy that people are like desperate for? I think there's another thing to Shifley where it's like, is this guy the same question we're asking about a lot of teams? I mean, we're asking about it with Mitch Marner. Can you win with Mitch Marner? Can he be that playoff performer? I mean, like, I don't know if Mark Shifley has, you know, 
center face of the franchise for a successful franchise sort of attribute to him. I'm just not convinced personally, but if you look at the price tag and the production, it does add up. He had that back in 2018 when they went to the Western conference final, he was the face of it. He's 24 years old and then signed this deal. And it was like, okay, this is a, I think a great value, one of the great values in the league with what he's put up over these last number of years at that price point. And I think the issue with Shifley is he's just viewed as someone that at times can mostly be miserable. That's really his biggest issue and his own, he's his own worst enemy. Mm. I think he's one of those guys that wants to win so bad that, you know, he wears that and you can almost see the scowl on his face um, when he's not able to get it done. So I think he's just one of those guys that runs hot and, teams see that and for whatever reason if if he's not being talked about more it's because he's played in winnipeg that's really i think another part of the issue well it'll be fascinating to see where he ends up and, and what it looks like uh when he indeed does land at a different destination uh if he does um this summer i want to talk to you about austin matthews in a bit because there was some news over the weekend people talking about what it might look like if he signs a contract but first let me just ask you about the oilers quickly because i mean if if you're doing sort of the you know, the hockey math after the fact, you looked at the Oilers. Well, they put up the best uh, fight against the Vegas Golden Knights who looked ultimately unstoppable now that we're looking back at their whole body of work here in the playoffs. It feels like they're one move away from, like, completing this roster. What are Oilers... What are people saying about the Oilers in hockey circles right now, and what do you think they have planned for this summer? Well, what people are... I don't know exactly what people are saying about the Oilers. I can tell you what... I'm saying or thinking about the Oilers, and that is it's pretty close to what year you sized up. I think this team, this is their year. I think they're really sort of a couple moves away, really smart moves on the margin from being right there. Um, yeah, it's the second year in a row that they lost to the eventual cup champ. And yeah, this year they lost to a team that they had their number basically the last couple regular seasons, and it hurts. They had a a bunch of things in the playoffs go the wrong way for them in terms of injuries to significant pieces. You know, Evander Kane and Zach Hyman were basically shells of themselves um, in that second-round series. And as good as Dreisaitl and McDavid played, it's another reminder that they can't do it all themselves. So that's, you know, when you look at this team, at least on paper, I think one thing that stands out to me is third-line center. They need some help on on the right wing. And I I think they could use a bit of an upgrade on defense, but not in a sort of we need a number one defenseman kind of thing. I think they did some significant movement in in bringing in uh, Matthias Ekholm at the deadline. And, And the fact that he had term, I think, is, you know, a nice feather in their cap to have for the next couple of years. I think they need someone in the three, four, five range in terms of a defenseman. Uh, that's going to be difficult to do given to accomplish all those things, given their cap situation. And the thing, believe it or not, that I'd prioritize first would be trying to get that third line center, get a Scott Lawton type of player to add to the mix. Um, maybe you can find some value somewhere uh, from one of the pieces that you have up front, or maybe you can trade Cody Cece somewhere. Uh, obviously, Warren Fogel's name has been out there. Kyler Yamamoto has been out there. Um, that's 
But I, I think this Oilers team is close. They don't hand you any awards for that, but it sure feels to me like next year it, it's not make or break, but they, they've got to they gotta get moving. Talking to Frank Saravelli, NHL insider and president of hockey content at dailyfaceoff.com. Okay, so let's go to Austin Matthews. Uh, what do you have on the pulse with the meeting with Brad Trey Living, the, the dinner date, maybe the chocolate souffle that he had had previously <laughs> in his past with Jonathan Huberdeau? Is, Two spoons. Is that the, is that the selling point? <laughs> What's the situation with Matthews? <laughs> yeah, I think um, when you take a look at, you know, the meeting and and the get to know each other phase, like I think that's really important in the sense that one of the big things that I sense Austin Matthews wants is not just the competitive, you know, chance to win that everyone craves. It's also um, really a, an understanding. It's not a comfortability. It's an understanding of here's what our plan is. Here's how we're going to tackle it. Here's how you factor in. And also I think really important to Austin Matthews is here's how some of the other core pieces fit into that. Mm-hmm. It's really no secret that the best hockey Austin Matthews has played in his career as a leaf has been with Austin Matthews on the same, or sorry, with Mitch Marner on the same line. So I, I do think that there's some, not hesitation, but some questions. We, we, I want to know more. That's like the, that's the critical um, differentiator. I think between today's athlete and 20 years ago is they ask questions. They had, they want information. They want to know what's happening around them and not every player gets a seat at that table. But I think the way that Brad true living is able to communicate, you see the work, you mentioned the Hubert O dinner last, uh, summer in, in Montreal shortly after the trade. Um, you know, he, he flew across the country and, and went out with Jonathan Huberto and, and got a real good sense. It was Brad Street Living and Don Maloney. They fired up the owner's jet. <laughs> and that went a long way to getting that player to sign on the dotted line for an eight-year extension with one year left, basically made him a Calgary Flame for nine years at a time when that team and franchise desperately needed to lock up a player. Now they're in a similar, but totally different situation now in, in trying to sell and convince Austin Matthews to stay. And he's done and said all the right things. My thing is if you're able to then, you know, whatever comes next in terms of the ask or whatever the Matthews camp is looking for, the big thing for me is if, the the Toronto Maple Leafs are willing to grant that will Austin Matthews sign on the dotted line and will he do it before July 1st? I think there's real, I don't want to say pressure, but there's a real push to, to try and get him locked up to, to a deal before then. And whatever that looks like, um, that's the goal of the Toronto Maple Leafs is to get that done and settled and signed so that they can then move on to the next pieces of business. What's your sense of the length of that deal? Um, eight years, obviously, probably what the Maple Leafs would prefer, but do you think Matthews is, is more in the three-year window in terms of what he thinks is the best fit? You know, I also wonder, by the way, if could the Leafs even afford eight years, depending on what the ask is? Like, mm. you could see such a significant number that it might throw – everything else out of whack. 
And not to say that a, a, a midterm deal, a three, four, five-year deal is going to be cheap. No one's thinking that by any stretch of the imagination. It's just how high would that AAV be if you're talking eight years? It just might mean is that it, you're you're throwing away the last season of Tavares, right? Like it, it might be impossible to win that year, but uh, that's maybe a minor concession if you get eight years from mm-hmm. Matthews. That's something that you can work around for such a long period of time. That's what I'm asking. Is it something you can actually work around? I don't know. I don't have a sense. And that's part of the reason why I think it might have to be. Uh, I also, I don't see him signing for eight years. I, it just, it doesn't seem to be his style um, based on the way this last contract played out. And, and the sense we've gotten to this point is that the net, you know, the next opportunity to hit free agency when the cap is bigger is is yet another price point to sort of readjust your earnings. So what do you think the strategy is then? Like, what what do you think he's, I mean, obviously he wants to sign another whopper at some point, but he's 25 years old. He's going to turn 26 before this season. So his year 26 season, that means what there's one more deal on his current deal. So that will be his age 27 season. If it's three, that brings him to 30. Does he want it to be like ultra short? So he's signing that deal before 30 because Not that there's going to be any reticence, but like we're talking about eight years taking you to 38, which is crazy talking about Austin Matthews being that old. (laughs) But we're at that point. Like, what do you think the strategy should be? Because if it is four or five years, maybe there are signs of decline before he can sign that eight-year deal. Like, if you're his agent, what are you pushing for? I'd be pushing for some of the, you know, shorter-term stuff you were just talking about, three years, kind of four years max. I mean, consider this too, like, he still has a bunch of money to earn this year. That's going to bring him north of $60 million in on ice career earnings. And he's still only going to be 26. So for most players, that's first off, that's a a career. And second, this next contract is probably going to bring him close to a hundred million bucks that whatever you're hitting by the time you're 30 or 31, I don't want to say it starts to become gravy, but like, I mean, look at Patrick Kane and where he's at in his career. I mean, he just underwent a significant hip resurfacing surgery. And yes, Patrick Kane was able to win uh, three Stanley cups, you know, in relatively short order in his career in the first nine years. But when you look at Patrick Kane, he's got $116 million in career earnings, and he's only 34. Like, Austin Matthews is going to way vastly exceed that, and we're already at the point with Kane where we're going, ah, he could sign a league minimum deal, no big deal, just, you know, to play next season. The money begins to not matter at that point. And, and not to say that Austin Matthews is ever going to get to that point, but if you look at it through that lens, uh, and your goal is to maybe get to a hundred and thirty million bucks. It starts to become infinitely more doable and reasonable. Yeah, it should be interesting. I mean, like, I, I don't. He's going to get paid regardless. Like, there's there's no chance if he signs a three year, four year deal that he doesn't get a massive eight year extension. You know, uh, barring something unforeseen happening. But like, you know, trying to squeeze every dollar out of the Maple Leafs, and let's say there's no success through another five years. 
uh, I wonder where that leaves everybody um, and if anyone will be thinking differently if you get to that point and that he may overplay his hand. I, I don't think so from an earnings perspective, but maybe winning in Toronto perspective, you might be asking yourself that question uh, the next time a negotiation rolls around. Uh, Eric Carlson, of course. Well, that's, that's actually what I was going to just to put a bow on this. I was going to yeah, say yeah. we're going to have a real good sense of what like it's great that Austin Matthews is saying that he wants to be back. And I'm not doubting that at all. I do actually think that he really wants to be a Toronto Maple Leaf um, in some ways for life. With that said, you're going to learn a lot by the ask that him and his team make in the next few weeks, because there is a chance, I think that he at least prices himself out that it becomes a spot where yeah, okay, the Leafs can do it, but can they really do it? Like, they can afford to do it, but can they actually build to win with a contract like that? That's that's going to be the real question. Yep, they're going to be eight years in. Maybe he goes another three or four. That's over a decade comfortably, 11, 12 years. If there's no success, do you want to make that 19 years and, and continue to give him every single penny at your disposal? for that long. I mean, I, it's, it's, it's fascinating. It's fascinating. I think he could really simplify things by just taking as much money as humanly possible right now. But again, that's not how he's been operating. So we will see what happens and what it says about him and the Maple Leafs future quickly on Eric Carlson. Do you think he will get traded this off season? If not now, then I'd say never. Um, and that sounds funny to say, but with, a guy coming off of a hundred point season and likely at Norris. Um, if someone can't figure it out at this juncture this summer, while he's seemingly back at the height of his powers, a spot that no one really ever thought that he'd get to again, a pinnacle. Um, I just don't see it happening. And I, I, I lean towards no. Um, and the reason is just the complexity of the trade. It's $11.5 million, and, and I know that the Sharks are willing to retain some, but there's a limit to it. And, yeah, Eric Carlson's attractive for the next number of years at $7 bucks. But in order to get your hands on him then, what do you also need to give up? So not only do you need to carve out $7 bucks on your own cap, which for some teams that's almost impossible to do this summer, then what do you also need to give up on top of it? Uh, you know, I think the only way Eric Carlson moves is if the San Jose Sharks begin to finally and properly value the salary cap space that they're moving off of their books and, and lessen their expectations on what they're getting on top of just moving Eric Carlson's contract. Because I just don't think the Sharks can even really begin to, you know, you could say that they're kind of bottoming out. They've been in the bottom four or five the last four seasons now, but until they really get to the very bottom and begin to shed contracts, like that team's never really going to be able to start to rebuild. So they've got a lot that they need to tear down and they need to come to grips with that. Well, Frank, next time we talk on Monday, it'll be the NHL awards, the NHL draft, an exciting week in Nashville. Assume I'll you'll be in Nashville. You'll be yeah. there. So that'll be fun times. Look at the vibes. Uh, I think they're going to announce some musical performers soon. So unless you have the inside scoop on that, I'm looking forward to finding out who might be performing some big names down in Nashville. So we'll get the scoop. We'll talk to you next week, Frank. Thanks so much. Sounds good, guys. Have a good week. That's Frank Cervelli, NHL insider and president of hockey content at dailyfaceoff.com and our insider brought to you by Don Valley North Lexus, where you can expect excellence online and in the showroom. 
visit DonValleyNorthLexus.com. It'll be a hell of a week next week. Yep, yep. The hockey world will descend on Nashville, which can only mean trouble, right? Most likely. Some big performers, I'm assuming. I know they saw like somebody teasing like, hey, they're going to announce some big names. It's time for the show to also cash in those Jim Montgomery Coach of the Year tickets. Yes, and he mentioned the Norris, and I mean, that one was kind of sewed up sewn up for a while i don't know i'm not convinced on that interesting okay we could do some preview for that later in the week i mean i feel like that's the one the only one that's not known but i I mean i i imagine it's eric carlson but i just feel like there were enough detractors that it's possible Mm. it might it's probably an eichel march so situation if we're being honest and that he's probably march so but maybe jack eichel can sneak in there finally for us Okay, so it's still lots of good stuff. Uh, we got the NBA draft this week, the NHL draft next week, the awards next week. Um, even though the season, the offseason begins, there's still lots and lots of stuff to lots come. Lots has to happen in 12 days. It's going to be jam-packed. Okay, we got Peter Galindo on the other side of the break to help us break down Canada-United States final. Uh, Canada falling short in their first opportunity to win a cup or, uh, I guess, a trophy since 2000. Um, it was the 2000 Gold Cup was the last time they hosted a trophy, hoisted a trophy. So, no, they played for a trophy. Um, did they not win the 2000 Gold Cup? We're going to have to fact check that. So we've got Peter Galindo joining us after the break, and let's talk about how this uh, might reflect uh, John Herbin's comments about the World Cup coming up and saying that Canada needs to get serious. So how do they get serious? Peter Galindo joins us. We'll do a baby wake and rake after. So send those picks in at 590-590. We'll put our parlay together before the show ends. Breaking down the top stories in the NHL every day. The Jeff Mary Show. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Back on the Fan Morning Show, Sportsnet 590 Fan. Uh, for those scoring at home, Canada did win the Gold Cup in 2000. So congratulations to Canada and winning me. the Gold Cup in 2000. Don't so, say and you. It's a long time ago. It was a long time ago. What were you doing in 2000? I would have been um, a young six-year-old. <laughs> Eating jawbreakers. Having a Crushing jawbreakers jaw and getting sad while Billy Talent on, screams in your I wasn't in this Billy Talent at six, okay? I wasn't... That intense. I was probably out shooting pucks at Talon the garage door. When did Billy get on door. the scene for you? When I was like in grade six or seven, seven or eight. Okay. Anywho. Peter. We got our buddy Peter Galindo, Sportsnet soccer writer, joining us on the show this morning after Canada loses the Nation League final last night. How's it going this morning, Peter? Uh, pretty good. I guess better than uh, how some Canadian fans might be feeling today after what was mm-hmm. a... Uh, Bit of a disappointing uh, result, to say the least. Yeah, it was an interesting response uh, on Twitter and online. Uh, And I think that there's a little progress there, right? Like being like really, really angry that you lost uh, in an opportunity to win a trophy is like, that's a far departure from like, you know, 10 years ago. But, you know, expectations are expectations and status is status. When you're a team that goes to a World Cup, uh, you're supposed to be angry when you don't win games. So how are you unpacking it? Is it somewhere in the middle? I guess I'm looking at like hearing John Herdman after and there's like a pretty composed uh interview with him afterwards and then he's on the podium and he's a little bit more angry and a little bit more pointed towards his criticisms of the organization that pays his salary like what should the reaction be for people who are fans of canadian soccer after they lose to the united states at the nation's league final yeah first of all it really does show how far the program has come that we're talking about 
disappointment after a first final in 23 years against our fierce rivals in the United States because it beats having to talk about another group stage loss against Martinique 1-0 where you've gone now five straight games without scoring in a gold cup, right? So that's clearly progress that they've made. And that is also symbolic of the last couple of years and how the expectations have changed and that entering this tournament, um, the team itself were quite confident that they could get the job done. And look, I was in that environment in March. I saw how absolutely dedicated they were to getting back on track, righting the wrongs of the World Cup, um, trying to get a first trophy in 23 years. And all the guys were on board. At least, you know, that, that's what it looked like from when I was there. And then to go from, I guess, the, the highs of that World Cup where, okay, it's the first appearance in 36 years. You're going to have a little bit of stage fright it's going to be a situation where you're going up against three elite teams with far more tier one players, more world cup experience, all those factors. You take that, you learn from it and you translate that to future games. And I think what's most disappointing about that game specifically on the pitch is that yes, they fell behind two nil early. We can talk about the tactical side, the, the maybe quality of the, of the defending in the first half, especially um, to me, we also do have to give the U S a lot of credit because they were magnificent in terms of shutting down Canada's wide players, specifically Alfonso Davies, Richie Larea um, defensively. They were eating up every aerial duel and you could just see that they were far more prepared, locked in. And I don't know if it was nerves on Canada's part, but they just didn't look as incisive as they normally do. Whereas the U S did, I think that led to them going behind 2-0 early. But then, again, to their credit, they were able to mount a few chances. But just like at the World Cup, when they got the ball into those dangerous areas, when they got the ball into the box, they just couldn't pull the trigger, couldn't convert. And that, I think, is really what is most frustrating, is that, yeah, you're going to have games where you're going to fall behind, especially when you're playing against top sides like the U.S. But when you have those opportunities to get yourselves back in the game and you don't take them, that's what really hurts the most. So from a game, um, from the actual game, that would be most disappointing. But John Herdman does have a point in that the lack of preparation might have also contributed to that. The U.S. did have 10 days to prepare for this tournament. So did Panama. Um, The Canadian players didn't arrive until the weekend before the Panama semifinal, and I believe training started on the Monday. So they had three days to train before Panama. Then they had one day to train before the U.S. game. They didn't really have time to be able to prepare for all the different scenarios. So that does come into play. Guys are out of form, out of rhythm. But you can also say the same thing about some of the American players too, like Christian Pulisic, who ended up having a very good tournament. Okay, so John Herdman's comments, he, he says, we're not serious, like we need to get more serious um, as a country and, and as, as a team to, to be able to you know do something at the World Cup. Is there issues that, I know in the previous year, there's been issues, right? There's the CBA, there's the players outwardly criticizing the situation, budget cuts, new faces, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So those, those issues now bubbling again. Um, I know it was a bit quiet in terms of where Canada soccer was at, but when you hear John Herdman, you see a loss in the, in the final. Are, are we kind of getting a temperature change? that might be rising here yeah i think it's it's probably partially frustration and also that 
um, you know, the opportunities are there, right? Because, again, first file in 23 years. you got a Gold Cup coming up in a few days now um, where you can potentially win that. And then you got a Home World Cup three years from this summer. So the fact that you have these chances, these players are – look – a lot of players are in the best situations club-wise that we've ever seen a men's program, right? Guys are winning trophies. Guys are playing for big clubs at the highest level. Um, So, you know, frankly, I I do think that he sees the opportunity here and the fact that they're not maybe getting the resources, the preparation time, the, the elite friendlies, the, um, you know, pretty much name everything he mentioned yesterday and, yeah, you can see why he's getting frustrated. And it, I don't think it's a coincidence that he's now used the last two windows to almost plead with the Federation via the media that, hey, look, I need these things. If you guys want us to be a top-tier national team, if you guys want us to make an impact on home soil at the World Cup in three years, this is what I need, and I'm not getting it. And understandably, I, I can see where he's coming from. Um, and, and that's what's going to make, I think, the next few months very interesting, because if he doesn't get what he wants, this is going to turn into quite the, uh, the, the interesting tussle between coach and federation. Is he just, like, screaming into a void? Like, is there any <laughs> real reason to believe he'll get anything that he wants, given the precedent, given the history, given where this organization seems to be at? I think the one benefit, and he spoke about this, I believe it was after the Panama game, could have been before, but it was right around there. And he was asked about uh, the job that the interim general secretary, Jason DeVos, has been doing, and he couldn't have been more complimentary. Um, Apparently the players have responded very well to him. He's been super transparent about the financial situation, um, certainly a lot more than the previous regime. And he was on John Herdman's staff. He is a former player. So you know that he's going to have the best interests of the Federation at heart. The problem is he is an interim. So how long is that title going to last? How long is he going to last? Um, is he still going to be able to get what, what John is asking for? That, that really is the big question here. The fact that it is looking a little more encouraging in that way, I guess, is optimistic, but I guess we'll we'll have to see over the next few months because we're going to start to see teams like the U.S., Mexico, who have the resources, announcing September and October friendlies. Canada usually has to wait a little bit because they just don't have the resources to get a big-name team, um, but we'll see if that ends up changing come September and October. Okay, so we've been discussing the issues probably through the Herdman lens for the last couple minutes here. Uh, Is there a different lens for which we should be looking? Like, I wonder how Alfonso Davies sees this right now. Clearly, he has some unhappiness with the organization uh, itself. But, like, is he looking at Herdman thinking, like, you know, we can prepare ourselves in other ways? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's possible, right? And, you know, not, not being there is, is, is difficult to say, but, um, you know, th- there's also a chance that maybe the players, after a long, grueling European season, um, they just, <laughs> maybe they just got a little bit, I guess, tired of the messaging or, or just for whatever reason, maybe didn't listen. Who knows? Um, it, it, it's possible that some of those factors came into play. And I personally think that part of it, Davies himself, I think, looked incisive. He probably didn't have his best game, but he at least looked like he was trying to make things happen. A lot of guys just 
did not seem like they were as sharp as they were, as incisive as they were. And, you know, part of that could be the preparation. I'm sure they may have some comments to say about that. So yesterday was the last appearance uh, for Atiba Hutchison for Canada after playing a very, very, very lengthy career. 40-year-old here made his announcement that he's going to be retiring, but he didn't get into the match. So I wonder your thoughts Mm -hmm. on that. I know it was a championship game. I know there was a trophy on the line, but at one point the game was out of reach and Canada probably could have had an opportunity to sub him in. I just wonder uh, your thoughts on that. And then also we'll we'll talk... in terms of Atiba's retirement and maybe if you have best memories or best moments of, of his journey with Canada. Yeah, it was a bit surprising to say the least that he didn't get in there just because they were 2-0 down. It was later in the game and it looked like it was probably not going to happen for Canada. So I think it raised a couple of eyebrows that he didn't end up getting in there. Um, the actual game situation maybe didn't, you know, in terms of obviously them trying to push for the win and I'm sure that was their number one goal probably didn't call for an Atiba substitution, but um, it it is a bit peculiar considering there have been times when I feel like John has made substitutions where it's been almost part of the narrative. So Alfonso Davies coming home to Edmonton, he gets taken out late in the game against Mexico, and then that's when Mexico starts to come back. But regardless, he got a standing ovation in front of his hometown. That was nice to see. So that part of it is probably surprising. Um, In terms of Hutchinson's impact, his best memories, um, I mean, look, just the fact that he continued to constantly accept call-ups, despite the fact that there were some very lean years, I think is a testament to the man that he is. Um, Because there have been several times he's been on the record saying this, that he just wasn't sure if he was going to come back because he was getting a bit frustrated or annoyed with the lack of standards, with um, just the state of the program, the state of the federation. But every single time he was asked, he still accepted the call. And um, no one, I think Canadian fans anyway, will forget that infamous 2007 Gold Cup semifinal when uh, he scored a goal that was clearly onside against the U.S. and it was called back, which no one can understand why it was. That's perhaps one of his most iconic moments, um, but certainly a, a magnificent career, and he helped pave the way. Like It's guys like him who are the reason why we now have, I think, slightly easier pathways to get to the top of the European game now because he had to scrap and claw his way through Scandinavia into Holland and then obviously ended up playing for some pretty big clubs himself. So uh, I'm sure he's going to be fondly remembered over what's been a magnificent 20-year career. Uh, I was reading some pregame content yesterday, um, teeing up the final between the Americans and Canadians, and a lot of them were saying, you know, forget Mexico, Canada's the United States' biggest rivalry now. Uh, Do you place Mexico third like others were, or was that just kind of like the best effort to sell what was a championship match? I'd say for right now, over the next three years, you probably say it is Canada and the U.S. for now, because even if you just look at the last, prior to last night, um, look at the last five matches between the two teams, and they've each won twice. They've drawn once. That was in Nashville in September 2021, one of the first World Cup qualifiers um, of, of, of that cycle. So when you look at that, in terms of the actual matchup, the rivalry, it's a bit closer. The U.S. has won, I think it's now six or seven in a row against Mexico. It's the longest streak they've ever had against Mexico, which is just unheard of, given the, the history of, of both programs. 
So I, I would say for that reason, yes, it's, it's above it. But even when you look at the state of the player pool for Mexico, um, they actually have fewer players playing in top leagues than Canada does now. They're not exporting players like they once were. Their youth national teams now are failing to qualify for major tournaments for the first time in, in decades. Um, so just the overall state of it, you, you would say that Canada would now probably be closer towards the U.S. and they would be closer to third, and Mexico would be slipping closer to third um, than they would be still among the big two. Historically, you still put them up there, but certainly over the course of the next three years, you probably now say Canada's elevated themselves to a level where they, they feel like they're maybe just a step below the U.S., but right there in terms of competing with them. And it goes to show you how far the team has come, despite yesterday's disappointment. And again, still a big microcosm of how far the program has come. Uh, last one for you here quickly, Peter. Uh, lots of potential for the transfer window among Canadian internationals. What's the most interesting Canadian transfer case for you this summer? That's a good question. I would say... Really, the big one, just in terms of the marquee um, signings, would be Jonathan David. Does he go to the Premier League? Does he make that big step up to one of the top clubs in the world? Because that is is something that, even though he was playing in the top five league, is something that can really elevate your game just by playing in that constant pressure every week, playing with the best players, getting the best possible uh, facilities, coaching, everything like that. So, the fact that he could be on his way to England, and on top of that, too, it's great exposure for him. Um, it, it could do wonders for his career. Secondary to that, probably Kyle Laren, just because he had such a great stint in La Liga. His club gets relegated. They are going to trigger the purchase option, which is about $1.5 million, and they're going to sell him for what looks to be about triple that to another La Liga club. We just don't know which one yet. It'll be fascinating to see where he goes, just because... If he is in form and firing, um, he can be quite unstoppable. It wasn't his best game yesterday. He had a few chances, couldn't pull the trigger. Um, but I think he showed prior, prior to this that when he is in form, when he is being trusted, he is a force to be reckoned with. Yeah, it's pretty cool that we're talking about two Canadian stars potentially joining, uh, maybe not a giant in La Liga, but La Liga, and maybe uh, Jonathan David uh, getting into the Premier League. Uh, we can watch him every weekend. Would be pretty, pretty cool and a good story, despite the negativity this morning when it comes to Canada soccer. Uh, Peter, this was a lot of fun. We appreciate you coming on this morning, and we will do it again soon. Absolutely. Happy to. Thanks, guys. That's Peter Galindo, Sportsnet soccer writer. Shall we hit a wake and rake? Yes, we will do a wake and rake without the music. Okay, let's do it. Okay, um, let's just throw together mine here quickly because we've got a couple anchor submissions to go through. Um, I'm going over in the Royals-Tigers game. Uh, both pitchers on the mound have over six ERAs, Jordan Lyles and Reese Olsen. I just feel like it's going to be a gross, dirty game with lots of runs scored. So over six and a half in Royals and Tigers. Okay, I'm going to go with an under under. Eight and a half, I'm going to call it, mm-hmm. uh, between the Blue Jays and the Marlins. We were talking to David Sampson in the 7 a.m. hour. He's quite confident that whoever Miami throws out there is going to be positive. That doesn't mean it's uh, 100% of the time, all the time. But this Blue Jays team has been struggling offensively. So a good Miami pitcher uh, hosting the Blue Jays. I like them to keep the runs down. And Jose Brios has been brilliant. Barrios sure has, has been. been everything we could possibly ask for. So I expect him to put up a couple zeros, keep that game under the number eight and a half Blue Jays Marlins tonight. 
with an early 640. It's beautiful. First pitch. Okay, here, let's go through some anger submissions. Uh, Ryan, who is in Vegas, friend of the show, betting the Was wake. Was he there for the? Betting the wake and rake. Live in Vegas. We better make it good for okay. him. For some West Coast flavor, he likes under on total run scored in the Padres-Giants game. Good pitching duel in Padres offense has been anemic. Ian, the snowplow driver, has a futures bet for me and all the listeners. Fred Van Fleet to end up in Philly plus 1,600. I have to find that because maybe I'm, I'm kind of like, I know this is blasphemous, but I'm kind of cheering for that. I want to see Fred have an opportunity to win before it's too late again. And uh, I think Philly would be a great spot with him with Nick Nurse. He also liked Jay's first five-inning money line. Okay, good morning. It's Corey from Port Hope. For my wake and rake, I like James Paxson over six and a half strikeouts for Boston tonight against the Twins. Eric from Burlington likes the Tigers tonight. We are full baseball mode. Uh, the Royals are 0-14 when Jordan Lyles starts. Easy pick. Ailish and Justin, I'm going Blue Jays versus Marlins. Jose Barrios over four and a half strikeouts. Curry or Chris? Ron and Jules back in the fold. Thanks. Oh, they won Luke Bryan tickets. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had a blast uh, for today's anchor. Going Barrios strikeouts. Jules going over bases. For Bo. Reds over Rockies on the money line. That's Ian. And finally, tonight, Road Dog, Arizona Diamondbacks, Merrill Kelly against Corbin Burns, D-backs money line at a plus number, Yelich, Tellez, Contreras, lifetime combined, two and thir- two for 33 against Kelly. That is Cody from St. Catharines. Okay, um, I think we got to go with Ryan. In Vegas, betting the wake and rake, sent me a message previously, days before, teeing this up. Oh, said, it was days before? Yes. Yeah, I was like, how are we getting a Vegas, no, like he's still he's, up? He said, it, he sent it in early so enough. So he was handicapping multiple days ahead? He was ready to rumble for about this pick. How did he have a line? He's just, he's in Vegas. No, they have There's lines. no rules there. <laughs> they, he got, knew. they have lines in abundance he wants out there. The okay, under okay. Padres right. Giants. So I think we got to do it. Um, All right, I like it. Over in the Royals Tigers, under in the Padres Giants for Ryan, and then under in the Blue Jays Marlins. Uh, parlay that up. It's plus 561. Okay. No, your no uh, money cash in the Fanex Cup. No, we're still looking good. Would have looked tough on you if Rory won. Yeah. I know. I was like, come on. If Rory wins this one, it's the worst look for us because we just avoided Rory McIlroy when yeah. we made our picks. But And congratulations to those who bet Wyndham Clark, I think, 80 to 1 coming in. That was I mean, that good. would be a nice Sunday evening treat to cash an 80 to 1 ticket on Wyndham Clark. So this week we've got uh, Travelers Championship, another $20 million purse. That's a big one as well. That's definitely one we'll be choosing. Uh, the Fan X Cup will continue at the uh, Travelers Championship. It sure will. Okay, so tonight... Earlier start time, 6.30 p.m. on Sportsnet, Sportsnet Now, Sportsnet 590, The Fan, and always streaming at sportsnet.ca slash 590 and the Sportsnet app. It's Jose Barrios kicking off a three-game series against Miami Marlins Kikuchi tomorrow. Gosman to wrap it up Wednesday. But, yes, a different start time. I don't know why, but 6.30 works for us. It's fine by me. It's Miami. They got to get to the club early. <laughs> well, thanks for listening. Hope everybody has a great Monday. We'll chat tomorrow.